I want to take a moment and welcome everyone who's here, who's not a normal part of our service on Sunday morning. We'd love for you to come and be one, be with us every week. Love to have you here at Harvest. Um, thank you so much for, for being here to worship our King. That's what we're here to do today, and, and a lot has been said, a lot has been sung, and hopefully there's going to be some great things you're going to hear from the Lord this morning in the message he put on my heart. Before we get into that, I want you to do something for me. Pretty much every one of you, I'm sure, got a bulletin when you came through the door. And I want you to take that bulletin out and just leave it uh, closed, but turn it out so you can look at the, the front part of it. I need you to do something. If you have a pen, uh, get your pen or you can borrow your neighbors when they're through with it. But I want you to do something. I want you to write the name of a lost friend or a lost family member, someone that you know, if they were to die today, would not go into the presence of the king. I want you to write their name right on the front of your bulletin. Very important that you do that. I had so many, I put them on a sticker and put it on the front of my bulletin. I've been praying for these people all week. I will tell you, some of them are my neighbors. Some of them are people that I've met in the community. Some of them are seated in the sanctuary today. That's okay. I want you to pray that uh, we put names on your bulletin that are people who need to know the Lord. And I want you to commit to praying for them. Very important that they come to know Christ. You're here today because you believe in the Lord or you believe about the Lord. Let's put our faith and our belief to practice. Amen? So write the name. It can be more than one. It can be several. And before I get started this morning, I want you to join me in prayer. Father, thank you for putting on our heart the names of people who need to know you. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to a point in our life where we came to know you through the testimony of others and through those who cared enough about us to pray for us and then share Christ with us. Thank you, Lord, for being in the saving business. God, everything we're going to do here today, I want to, bring, I want to do to bring glory and honor to you. Lord, I pray for the people whose names are on my bulletin. I pray for their souls. I pray for boldness to be able to witness to them. I pray for an open heart to receive truth. And Lord, I pray for your providential work that you do in them every day. And I pray for a miracle. A supernatural miracle in you saving their souls. Thank you that we have the privilege of praying for others. Now may your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for doing that. I pray that you will follow through and be praying for those people. There are opportunities every Sunday for you to bring them to church and help them to come to know Christ. There's a great event coming up real soon. Franklin Graham 
is going to be in our area, you could also take them there and help them to come to know the Lord. If you notice the title of my message this morning, it's all about the empty tomb. Where would we be without an empty tomb? You ever thought about that? Where would we be without an empty tomb? Webster defines the word supernatural as existing or occurring outside the normal experience or the knowledge of man. It is not explainable by the, no, no, the known forces and the laws of nature. You know, the act of saving a lost soul is a supernatural event. Totally supernatural. No mere human can accomplish making you right with God. Salvation is divine. It is something that only God can do. It is an act of God. The Bible teaches us that what Jesus did on the cross was that he made God's gift of salvation available for everyone. Everyone. But not everybody's going to receive the free gift that God has to give. Because so many reject the claims of Jesus Christ. And in fact, because so many just don't believe that God is real. If you were here last week and the week before, you heard me say that the greatest war in our world that's being fought right now is in the minds of our children. They're being taught directly and indirectly that there is no God. The world is lying to them. Two of the biggest lies of our world that our world is propagating today is that God is not real or that God is dead. The world does not want our kids to believe in God. The world and Satan don't care what you believe in, just as long as you don't believe in God. God does not fit into Satan's plan. And it's sad, but the vast majority of our world has bought into that lie, hook, line, and sinker. We live with a mindset that if I can't see him, then I don't believe in him. You know, out of sight, out of mind mentality. Some say that if I could just see God, then I would believe in him. Well, let me give you a couple, couple of, of thoughts. For those of you who want to see God and those of you who think you need to see God in order to believe in him, let, let me just throw a couple things out there in front of you. First of all, you can't see what is unseeable. Right? Every day you plug your cell phone into the wall plug and you get it charged up, right? We wear those cell phones out. It won't be long before you'll be driving electric cars. You can't see electricity, right? You can feel it, but you can't see it. That doesn't make, make it unreal. It is unseeable. God, God is the same way as electricity. You, you, you can't see him, but he's real. Paul wrote, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God said, but you may not look directly at my face, for no one can see me and live. Why? Because God's a holy God. We're sinful people. So you can't see what is unseeable. However, you need to accept what can be seen. 
God has made himself known through self-revelation. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul wrote, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. <clears throat> he existed before God made anything at all and is supreme over all creation. One day, one of the disciples named Philip came to Jesus and said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. That's another way of saying we will believe. <clears throat> Jesus said, Philip, don't you even know who I am, even after all the time that I've been with you? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, so why are you asking to see him? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of what you have seen me do. God is supernatural. He is unseeable. But where he can be seen, you need to take a good, good, strong look at him. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman church and he said this, For Moses wrote that the way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. In other words, if you want to get to heaven by way of the law, then you have to, you have to obey every one of those. You can't break even one. He goes on to say, but faith's way of getting right with God says you don't need to go to heaven to find Christ and bring him down to help you. And it says you don't need to go to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. Notice verse 8. Salvation that comes from trusting Christ, which is the message that we preach, is already within easy reach. In fact, the scriptures say the message is close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. Friends, God's way is by faith. It is by believing the unseen, the unseeable. That is what faith is. Well, how do you do that? Notice verse 9. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. Jew and Gentiles are the same in this respect. They all have the same Lord who generously gives his riches to all who ask for them. That's important. All you got to do is ask and God will bless you. But notice verse 13. This is the important verse. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Anyone. Anyone. Even you. Even you. Even that person that you wrote their name down on your bulletin. God can save them. If he can save you, he can save anybody, right? Amen. Now, the Bible tells us that the death of Jesus was a physical event that requires your faith. It was a real event that was accomplished with supernatural signs. The Bible says that there was darkness during the final three hours that Jesus hung on the cross. I'm talking about dark darkness. It says that the veil, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn from the top to the bottom 
Thus God allowed us into his presence. There was this rock-splitting earthquake that took place. And there were some graves of deceased believers that were opened. And there was a number of people that, that stood back up and were alive again for a short period of time. And then after that, says the resurrection of Jesus would come three days later. We're here today because it's Easter, right? I like to think of it as the resurrection day. I think that's a better phrase. But Easter focuses on his resurrection, and rightly so. But seldom do we look at the burial of Jesus. While his burial is often overlooked, honestly, it was just as supernatural and divinely orchestrated as anything else that ever happened during Jesus' earthly life. If you were to take a serious look at Scripture, then you, you could clearly see that God functions in history in two primary ways. God is often seen accomplishing His divine purposes through supernatural miracles. Miracles. Miracles are supernatural events that interrupt or even suspend natural laws and processes. Miracles are unexplainable. They are rare events, but they are no less real. Most often, miracles are performed without the aid of humans. But there are biblical examples where God worked through human beings to do the supernatural. Probably one of the most notable in the Old Testament is when the nation of Israel crossed the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14. Look with me at verse 21. It says, Then Moses raised his hand over the sea. And the Lord opened a path through the water with a strong east wind. The, the wind blew all night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Can you imagine that? There, there are scholars that believe that about one to two million people walked across the Red Sea on dry ground during that event. Says then the, the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and charioteers followed them across the bottom of the sea. But early in the morning, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw them into confusion. Their chariot wheels began to come off, making their chariots impossible to drive. Let's get out of here, they exclaimed. The Lord is fighting for Israel against us. When all the Israelites were on the other side, the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the sea again, and then the water will rush back over the Egyptian chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea. The water roared back into its usual place, and the Lord swept the terrified Egyptians into the surging current. The water covered all the chariots and charioteers, uh, the entire army of Pharaoh, of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived, not a one. It says the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry land as the water stood up like a wall on both sides. That's a miracle. I mean, talk about a miracle. You can't deny that that was a miracle. I can't wait to get to heaven and see that on the big screen. I, I, want, I want God to just plug that DVD in and let me see that. 
there were plenty of miracles in the Old Testament, and equally there were an abundance of miracles in the New Testament, New Testament, most of which took place during the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. John wrote, this is that disciple who saw these miracles, saw these events, and recorded them here. And we know that his account of these things is accurate. John says, I verified. I saw it, and I'm writing about it. And he says, I suppose that if all the other things that Jesus did were written down, the whole world could not contain the books. There were a lot of miracles done in the church. There were a lot of miracles done through the church. There were a lot of miracles that were done by the apostles and some by the associates that walked with them. And they were all done to help people and to give God glory. So God does, he did, and he does work through miracles. The other way that God is often seen accomplishing his divine purposes is through his supernatural providence. He worked through miracles, he works through providence. Providence is God constantly working, consistently working, day in and day out in the world without him interrupting natural law or suspending the natural process of things. John MacArthur says providence in, involves God accomplishing his purposes by taking all the infinite number of attitudes. How many of you have a different attitude than the other person next to you? We all do, don't we? God working through all the infinite number of attitudes and choices and acts of free human and spiritual beings and weaving them perfectly into his own purpose. That, he says, is a far greater display of divine wisdom and power than the momentary interruption of natural law by a miracle. When you read about Hannah's prayer, a prayer that she prayed in desperation, speaking to God and speaking of God, it clearly demonstrates the providence of God. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. She prayed, the Lord brings both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. The Lord makes one poor and another rich. He brings one down and he lifts another up. He lifts the poor from the dust, yes, from a pile of ashes. And he treats them like princes, placing them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's. And he has set the world in order. He will protect his godly ones. But the wicked will perish in darkness. No one, he says, she says, will succeed by strength alone. There are many, many more examples of God's providence scattered throughout Scripture. I think Solomon rightly summed it up this way. Proverbs 16, 9. We can make our plans, and we do that every day, right? I got up this week, had a whole list of things I needed to get done. I planned to get those things done. I still got some things to get done. <laughs> Why? Because God changes things. That's what this says. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Providence. You know, what is amazing is that while a whole host of different people planned and then carried out the most heinous act of wickedness in human history, and that was the crucifying of Jesus Christ, what they were really doing without knowing it 
was that they were following God's plan and doing his will. That's providence. And yes, I would boldly say to you that the killing of Jesus was a divine act of God's providence. A divine act of God's providence. Peter, when he stood on the day of Pentecost and preached to a a large crowd of people, he said, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by, by doing wonderful miracles and wonders and signs through him, as you well know. But you followed God's prearranged plan. You carried it out, but you were following God's plan. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and murdered him. Yes, the cross was definitely a part of God's plan. Peter goes on to say, friends, I realize that what you did to Jesus was done in ignorance. And the same can be said of your leaders. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had had declared about the Messiah beforehand. That he must suffer all of these things. Now turn from your sins. And turn to God. So that you can be cleansed, cleansed of your sins. There's a portion of that sermon that includes a prayer that Peter prayed with those that were there with him, those disciples. He prayed, that is what has happened here in this city. For Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, the governor, the the Gentiles and, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant. Your, anoint, uh, your anointed one. In fact, he says, everything. Everything they did occurred according to your eternal will and plan. The cross that Jesus died on was definitely a part of God's plan. They carried out the plan of God. But his murder was a sinful act of which they were all guilty. Guess what? We all are guilty of that murder. Now, God's providence is seen throughout Scripture, but nowhere in Scripture is God's providence more clearly seen than in the burial of Jesus. And what I want you to see this morning as we look at this, I want you to see God's activity working behind the scenes of this event, controlling the actions of three very different groups of people. The first group we look at is that handful of soldiers that were just doing their job. Think about it. They didn't hate Jesus, but then neither did they love him. They were just making eight, so we say. They were doing their job. They weren't politically or emotionally motivated in any way. They were totally neutral, siding with neither the followers of Christ nor his enemy. Nonetheless, God's providence is seen in their military service. They were serving Rome, but what they did not know is that they were serving God. In John 19, 30, it says Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. In other words, Jesus died only after having been on the cross for six hours. That was quick. That was fast. People just didn't die that fast on the cross. They were a master. They were masters at keeping them alive and torturing them. That was so much faster than normal. Jesus died. But if you remember, the other two men that were crucified with him were still alive. 
All three were crucified on Friday, the day of preparation. But by Jewish law, they had to be dead and down by six in the afternoon when the Jewish Sabbath began. In John 19, 31, he writes, The Jewish leaders didn't want victims hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath. And a very special Sabbath at that because it was the Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their death in order, uh, by ordering that their legs be broken. If your legs are broken, you can't stand up. Breathing really is not the problem, it's exhaling. You die from poisoning because you can't exhale air after you've breathed it and used it. It said they asked Pilate to hasten the death by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down after they're dead. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and blood and water flowed out. He says in verse 35, notice this, this is a very important verse. John writes, this report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. It is presented so that you can also believe. I saw it, I'm telling you what I saw, hoping that you will believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, not one of his bones will be broken. And they will look on him whom they have pierced. As you can see from what the scripture tells us, their legs were broken to hasten their death. Obviously it did its job. But Jesus was already dead. Four things confirm that Jesus was actually dead, really dead. First, they didn't break his legs. They didn't have to. He was dead. Second of all, the blood mixed with water was evident that Jesus was suffering from severe heart trauma. He was dying of a broken heart. Then there's the soldier's report to Pilate. In Mark 15, it said Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. It just didn't happen that way normally. So he called for the Roman officer in charge and he asked him, is he dead? And the officer confirmed the fact. And Pilate then told Joseph that he could have the body. Last of all is the, the eyewitness of John who wrote this account. He was the only apostle who saw Jesus die. Remember that, that Jesus gave him the responsibility of taking care of his mother. Where were the others? They were hiding. They were hiding. Through the providential uh, divine care of God. God controlled the actions of these soldiers. They authenticated the promise of Scripture. They also validated the claims that Jesus had made that he would be the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. They also confirmed Jesus' death. In doing that, they absolutely affirmed the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection since he could not rise from the dead unless he was really dead. Think about this with me. Think about this reality. 
At the end of the day, even though the Jewish leaders and Pilate and the soldiers, they were doing what they wanted to do, God's perfect will was really what was being done. Not only did you have this small group of soldiers, but there was a small group of believers who were loving Jesus to the very end. In Luke 23, it says, Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. But he had not agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea. And he had been waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body. With Jesus' death rightly being confirmed by the soldiers, the next step in God's providential care was to remove his son and to bury him. Normally, criminals were thrown in the trash pit, the garbage dump. But God was not going to have that for his son. But here's the really cool thing. God had Joseph rightly placed there where he needed to be to be able to take care of his son. Joseph was a member of that governing Sanhedrin body. If he had not been, he would have never had access to Pilate. The Bible tells us that this is the only time that he's mentioned, but it's interesting. He's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. He was obviously a secret believer, a follower of Christ. He was a known and most likely the lone dissenter among the Jewish religious leadership. The most important thing to note, though, is that Joseph loved Jesus so much, so much, that he was willing to risk his reputation and his life in doing the will of God. So God providentially used Joseph to fulfill prophecy and to take care of his son's funeral. Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before, reads from prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sin, that he was suffering their punishment? He had done no wrong. He never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Joseph was that rich man. And he had already arranged for this tomb to be carved and, and personally prepared for his own burial, but instead he used it for Jesus. It says in verse 53, Then Joseph took the body down from the cross, and we know from other places in Scripture that Nicodemus helped him. And he wrapped it in a long linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. Solid rock. You know, I, I, I've stood in that tomb. I am not 100% sure that that is the exact one he was buried in, but it was one, it certainly was one just like it. Solid rock. Hmm. It says this was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation for the Sabbath. So we see God's providence working in the soldiers and then in believers like Joseph. But God's providence is even seen in the hateful enemies who did everything they could to keep Jesus dead and in his grave. Why would they do that? Simply because a dead Jesus would no longer be a threat to them. Think about that. If Jesus remained dead and in that tomb, 
Christianity would die and disappear if there were no resurrection of this man. Luke chapter 23, verse 55 and 56. Read, as his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and, and saw the tomb where they placed his body. They saw that. Then they went home and they prepared spices and ointments to embalm him. But by the time that they were finished, it was the Sabbath. So they rested all that day as required by the law. It's interesting that that is all the information that Dr. Luke gives us about this. Those who love Jesus were only trying to give him a proper burial. And notice again that there were no men in this group. This says women. Where were the men? They were hiding still. Hiding. Fearing for their own life. Now Matthew in his gospel gives us a little bit more detail about what the enemy Enemies were doing. Their, their biggest concern was keeping Jesus dead and in the grave because, you see, a, an empty tomb was going to be a huge, huge problem for them. They, they never wanted to see Jesus again. Never. And especially alive. They were worried because of what Jesus had promised would happen, that he would rise from the dead. So they had to make sure that this resurrection never happened. In Matthew 27, verse 62, it says, The next day, on the first day of the Passover ceremony, uh, the, the leading priests and the Pharisees went to see Pilate. Did you notice that it didn't mention the Sad Sadducees? It just says Pharisees and leading priests. The Sadducees were not there because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Not theirs, nor uh, Jesus's either. And so these leaders told Pilate, Sir, we remember what the deceiver once said while he was alive. After three days I will be raised from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and telling everyone that he came back to life. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Oh, friends, these Jewish leaders were scared to death. They were scared of what might happen, what could happen, what was said would happen. How would you feel if you just killed the Son of God? I'm certain that they were terribly convicted in their hearts. Why? Because convicted people either repent and get right with God or else they do more stupid stuff. Well, they continued on in their rebellious stupidity. It's kind of like Adam and Eve trying to hide from God after they sinned, trying to hide in bushes. How do you hide from God in some bushes? And, and they sewed fig leaves together to make clothing. How stupid can you get? Those things only get drier and more itchy, you know. Just more stupid stuff. And, and that's what the religious leaders were doing in concocting this potential narrative that the disciples just might try to steal Jesus' body to make it look like he was raised from the dead. These leaders had to keep Jesus in the grave, so their foolish fears only led them to make this futile attempt. But here's some reality for you. The disciples never had any kind of plan to steal Jesus' body, and this is how I know that. 
I've already mentioned this a couple of times, but they had no such plans because they themselves were hiding for fear that they were going to be the, the, the next to be arrested and crucified. In John 20, verse 19, it says, that evening, and we're talking about Sunday evening, we're talking about three days after the, the, the crucifixion of Christ, on the first day of the week, the disciples were still meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They weren't trying to steal Jesus' body. They were scared to death. Even they had strong doubts about the resurrection. They really were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They thought it was all over. They knew their master was dead, and dead people in their day just didn't come back to life. In their mind, it was over. It was over. Done. How did all the apostles die, save John? Tradition says that John died on the Isle of Patmos, but every one of the other apostles died a martyr's death. Now think about that. They sacrificed their lives believing and following Jesus. Well, friends, you don't do that for a dead man. And neither did they. They did it for a living Savior. Think with me for just a moment. Would you have stolen Jesus' dead body, then pretended that Jesus rose from the dead, and then go out all over the world preaching the resurrected Savior, and, and then die yourself a martyr's death for someone who was only a dead man whose body you had to steal? I don't think so. I wouldn't have. Who does that kind of thing? Nobody. The Bible tells us that Pilate granted the enemies their request and told them. This is what Pilate said. He said, take some guards and secure it as best you can. <laughs> so they sealed the tomb and they posted guards to protect it. You think about it. There was a large stone across the front of that tomb. Then there was a Roman seal and then there was a group of soldiers. How do you get through that to get to Jesus? John MacArthur writes, by that act, they falsified yet another skeptical denial of the resurrection. One that they themselves would put forth that the disciples stole Jesus' body and faked the resurrection. The cowardly disciples who had fled in panic when Jesus was arrested would not have been able to wrest the body of the Lord away from a detachment of Roman soldiers. And yet that is the lie the leaders told. At this point, friends, it was all political. It was a ludicrous lie that when you think about it, it actually validates that the resurrection did take place. William Lane Craig wrote these words, and they're powerful. He says, the point is that the Jews did not respond to the preaching of the resurrection by pointing to the tomb of Jesus. They didn't want you to know it even existed. Or by exhibiting his corpse, but entangled themselves in a hopeless series of absurdities trying to explain away his empty tomb. The fact that the enemies of Christianity felt obligated to explain away the empty tomb by the theft hypothesis shows not only that the tomb was shown confirming the birth or the burial story, but also 
so that it was empty. The fact that the Jewish polemic never denied that Jesus' tomb was empty, but only to explain it away is compelling evidence that the tomb was in fact empty. Wow. My friends, God performs miracles. And he providentially works in every situation to accomplish his divine purpose. And the burial of Jesus, his son, was no exception. The Apostle John tells us that the account of the life and the death and the resurrection and especially the burial of Jesus Christ was written down on paper and provided for us today with great purpose. Look at verse 31. He said, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life. Not just the life you're living now, but eternal life. This life is going to end. But there's a life to come that you need to be prepared for. So my friends, do you believe in Jesus? And when I ask that question, I'm not saying do you believe him here. I'm saying do you believe him here. This doesn't matter. This is not going to get you into heaven. If you don't take what you know in your head and turn it into heart knowledge and let it change who you are, you're in a mess. You're in a mess. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus to make things right between you and God? Because sin separates us from God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes back to the Father except through me. That's what the cross and the grave and the empty tomb's all about. Being brought back into a relationship with God. Do you believe? What are you going to do with the empty tomb if you don't believe? You know, if you read on in Scripture, you find that the soldiers were paid a lot of money to lie about that empty tomb. And the believers honestly struggled to believe that it's empty. They had to go see it for themselves. And then Thomas still didn't want to believe. The empty tomb couldn't be covered up by the enemy. Why? Because the empty tomb was real. God made it real. So what are you going to do with the empty tomb? You know, when you stop and think about what you do with the empty tomb, there's only two responses that you will have. There are many today that reject the empty tomb, saying it never happened. You can do that if you want to. But that's risky. That's really risky. That's the biggest gamble you'll ever make in your life. To believe that that tomb is just a hoax. You can reject it. Free will. God will let you do that. But friends, the other side of that is you can accept it. You can believe it. And let me just say, if, if you go so far as to believe in an empty tomb, then why not go a little bit further and, and believe and trust in Jesus Christ to make you right with God? It doesn't take much more faith to do that. If you can believe in the empty tomb, then believe in Jesus. Trust him. Why don't let you let him perform a miracle in your life by letting him save your soul. Think about that. It is so easy. It is so simple. 
You don't have to be a rocket scientist to believe in Jesus and to believe in his salvation. Childlike faith is all it takes. Just a little bit. If you will believe in him, listen to me. Death will no longer be your greatest enemy. And the grave will no longer be your end. And hell won't have to be your home. All you got to do is trust Jesus. All you got to do is trust Jesus. You know, I, I, I asked you earlier to write the names of lost people on your bulletin. Some of you probably didn't know how to do that. I started to ask you to write your name on there if you were lost. You know, somehow God gives us the ability to know whether we're right with God or wrong with God. He lets you know in your heart whether you're ready to meet him. I believe there's some of you here this morning that don't have a peace about that. I've been praying for you this week. If you don't have absolute assurance that you would go to heaven today if you were to die today, then God has been speaking to you. Why? Because he doesn't want you to die unprepared. Is death possible today? Yeah. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We've come to worship the Lord on Easter Sunday because he is the Savior of the world. Why not leave him, leave here today, letting him be the Savior of your soul? We're praying for others to be saved, but what about you? Do you need Jesus today? I can't think of a better time to get saved than on Easter Sunday. Am I correct, Dave? Did you say you were saved on Easter Sunday? How many years ago? 33 years ago. Dave gave his heart to Jesus on Easter Sunday. Why not join him? Why not today? It's free. Won't cost you anything. Will you pray with me?